Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. from Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 9 in ASB. If you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus summoned his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me for three days already and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them will have come from a great distance. And his disciples replied to him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to recline on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them, and started giving them to his disciples to serve. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he blessed them, he told the disciples to serve these as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 men were there, and he dismissed them. Mark 8, 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Chrissy. Well, good morning. Hi. Uh, <clears throat> I got the wave back. That's pretty good. I was like, that's good. So uh, when Candy and I were uh, young married, which is a long time ago, uh, we attended a church that was probably about the same size as, as uh, Grace. And at that church, we actually did our own vacation Bible schools. Now, what do I mean by that? By that, I mean we picked the theme we wrote the curriculum. We even wrote the songs. It was the, it was the most fun time that we had done doing all this. So, uh, I mean, like, one year we had the kids help Noah build the ark. That was a blast. Miraculously, it got done before the flood, which was good. <laughs> um, another year, they spent a week with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They had clothes on. Um, <laughs> But this whole thing started because one year we decided to do a time machine. And the first year that we did the time machine, we built this thing that the kids had to go through, you know, and then they got to this tunnel, and the tunnel directed them to four, one of four different areas. And, and the first year um, was the Old Testament, so they ended up, one, in the belly of a fish, and who is there to talk to but Jonah? And, and then another room was the, was the wall of Jericho. And oh, that the kids have fun with that. The next year, we decided to do an Old Testament. I mean, I'm sorry, a New Testament uh, time machine. 
And so they went through the whole thing, you know, and they ended up in a room. Uh, one room was, um, uh, let's see, one, was, one room was with Paul and Silas in prison. That was kind of a scary room. The other room, though, that, one was, that was, I want to talk about was actually the feeding of the multitude. And so the kids would come into this room and, you know, to, to pull off the whole idea of Jesus just, you know, constantly pulling bread out of the basket, um, we had a screen up, and so all they saw was the shadows of Jesus and the disciples. And through the whole presentation, Jesus was reaching into the basket and pulling out a loaf of bread and handing it to the disciple. The disciple would take it, you know, and, and then he'd reach in another. And it, I mean, every day, we did this like for four days, hundreds of loaves of bread. Now, what the kids didn't know <laughs> is that behind the shadows... Jesus would pull out the bread, give it to the disciple. The disciple would take it, slide it on the floor to another disciple hidden in the shadows who would stick it back in the basket. <laughs> Jesus would. And so we miraculously turned two loaves of bread into about four or 500 over that week. Well, we're going to talk about that, except it wasn't, uh, this is the real thing. Jesus uh, is going to ask his disciples to do the impossible. In fact, one of the things we're going to learn is that Jesus never asks you to do the possible. If you think that's an overstretch, an overreach, he did say, without me you can do nothing. Nothing. Okay? We're going to learn about the front end of this, a little bit about context, because it's really going to be important. Uh, I kind of bumped in a couple life questions that as a follower of Christ I needed to answer. And it, it almost has nothing to do with the sermon. I mean, at least not the, the theme of seeing the possible in impossible. Uh, and then we're going to actually look at four steps that you could take when you realize that God has called you on a divine assignment to do the impossible and how you could see the possible in it. Are you ready? All right, let's go join Jesus and his disciples. Mark 8, verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, well, let's back up a second. During those days, what days? Well, Jesus, Mark is actually referring to the story he just told about how Jesus went up to Tyre. And now what had happened is that in those same days, Jesus retraced his steps back through, back through Capernaum, back over to a place uh, that's called Sidon, an area of Decapolis, which is a distance of about 50 miles. So that would be like walking from here to the Broad House in, in Kenosha. A hike. Yeah. Decapolis means 10 cities or 10 towns. Uh, it was not Jewish, like Capernaum. In fact, it was Gentile. And it was Greco-Roman in culture, and not Oriental in culture, so it was Western. It was like Greeks and Romans. One historian referred to Decapolis as Rome away from Rome. Let me try it again. No, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, um, and in, par in part, part of the context is that these Gentiles and the Jewish people did not get along. They did not like one another. So that was what Jesus was moving himself into. Verse 2, I have compassion for these people. 
Notice he didn't call them my children, these people. I have already been, they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. You know, Proverbs teaches us that we're supposed to know the, the condition of our flocks. That's a nice way of saying that if you're a leader, you need to know the condition of the people that you lead. And Jesus was the good shepherd. And so he knew the condition of his flocks. It says that he had compassion. It means that it was a deep emotional sense. Now, you know, we as moderns think of love or compassion up here in our heart. The ancients thought of compassion down here in their stomach. That's because they knew that when someone got, it was frightening, something here happened. When they fell in love, they got butterflies, something here happened. So they saw this as the center of their emotions. It says that Jesus felt deeply, deeply for what was going on with these people. And, and, and trans, uh, uh, compassion is basically what God gives us to sense other people's needs. It's that compassion. I think he was teaching the disciples about compassion. It, it's really hugely important. This massive crowd had been so enthralled with what Jesus was saying and doing that they completely lost themselves. Three days, they've been just sitting there listening to him. Now, let me put you in the context again, okay? Three days in the wilderness means absolutely no hotels, sleeping on the ground. No McDonald's, no 7-Eleven, no slushies. All right? They had to bring their own food, probably dried, probably salted, and they had run out. You ready for this? Nor porta potties. I'm not going to talk about that anymore. I'm sure you kind of figure it out. And just in case you think, well, you know what? Actually, these people—it was a simpler time. I mean, you know, I mean, let's let's face it. You know, their calendar wasn't full. They probably had plenty of time to do things. Think about this. I wrote these down. Um, no sick days. No vacation days, no floating holidays, no birthdays off, and certainly no days for religious exemptions unless you were in a Jewish territory and it was a Sabbath. Every man, every woman there was a day laborer. They got paid the day they worked. No work, no pay. Three days. People were so hungry for what Jesus was saying and doing, they placed their jobs, their livelihood, their physical health, all in jeopardy. And this is where I had to ask myself a question. Wayne, are you willing to spend three days alone with Jesus? Would you do that? You know, would you keep, what keeps me from spending three days with Jesus? So let me ask you, what would keep you from spending three days with Jesus Christ? How about one day? Half a day? An hour? Ten minutes? Now, I know there's about 20 people here that say, listen, I know that I couldn't do that. Moms, I'm sorry. I know that you're busy. But I was thinking about the story of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach's wife 
who during the day would sit in this one rocking chair, grab her Bible, and throw her apron up over her head. And every one of her 21 kids knew that she was not to be disturbed until she got from away from that chair. Now, you know, I mean, I don't know what it looks like for you, moms or dads, but surely there's a way. Think about it anyway. So what makes a crowd so unique is that this was not a Jewish crowd following a Jewish rabbi. This was a Gentile crowd, and as we just heard in the context, didn't really necessarily like Jewish people. So what was it that made this crowd different? What was it that attracted them to Jesus? Well, I think that, and this is all part of the context, so we get the feel of this before I get into the points, you know. I think one of the things is a person that Mark introduced us to earlier in the gospel. And I'm going to read a little bit of his story, and I think you'll figure out exactly who it is once you start hearing about it. It's in Mark 5. It says, As he, and that's Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed, legions of demons in this, remember him? Lived in amongst the tombs. Implored Jesus that he might accompany him. And Jesus didn't let him. He said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began proclaiming in Decapolis. There it is. What great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. There you have it. That's the first missionary in the New Testament. He probably, wasn't a Gen- he probably wasn't a Jew, he was a Gentile. And God didn't send him to a place that he didn't know his language, didn't know the culture. He sent him home to be a witness. Now, I'm not given the gift of evangelism, and most of us aren't. But all of us, every one of us who follows Christ has been given the command to be a witness. That's just to tell someone your Jesus story. You know, you had a head-on collision one day with Jesus Christ, and you came out the better for it. That's all God wants you to do, is just go up to your neighbor and say, hey, you know what, this is going to sound really weird, but I've got to tell you about what happened to me. Oh, what happened to you? Oh, geez. No, 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 let me finish before you get crazy. Jesus made a great difference in my life. So, we all have a Jesus story to share And this guy shared his story, and it changed thousands of people's lives. Thousands. Can you imagine that? It said 4,000 just men. They were there. Imagine what your story could do with your neighbors. You've got a Jesus story. Let them know it. Let them know it. Okay, let's keep going here. Um, Excuse me. So when, after Jesus asked um, about the food and talking about how the people were hungry, his disciples answered, he said, but where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? And I find this really interesting because in the feeding of the 5,000, which was, let's say, about a month before this, just about maybe a couple weeks, um, there were 5,000 people. They were there for one day and the disciples were all over it. They were like, hey, you know, these people are hungry here. You know, Jesus, what are you going to do about it? And it was actually the disciples who called Jesus' attention to it. 
A month later, they're in a crowd of 4,000, and Jesus is like, hey guys, um, we've been here three days now. These people are really hungry. What are we going to do about it? How many fish do you have? You know, there's a, a, a group of people that together are called higher critics. And they look at the two stories of the gospel, uh, this gospel about the 5,000 and the 4,000, and they say it's actually the retelling of exactly the same story. Okay, and the reason they say that is because they want to show, at least they think they want to show, that there's a mistake in the Bible. Because they're trying to teach that the Bible isn't inspired, and basically that Jesus is not divine. The problem is, is that they are really different. I, I encourage you to read the two accounts and make a list of the differences between them, and you'll see they are very different stories. To say the least of which, they're in two different places, and one's the Jewish people and one's the Gentile people. So let me get to you what I think is the reason why the disciples were so clueless. I think when they were at the 5,000, it was 5,000 Jewish people. And they were Jewish disciples. And when they get to the 4,000, it's 4,000 Gentiles. They had a disdain for them. They probably didn't love them. They maybe even hated them. They may have been prejudiced against them. And you know what that did to their compassion? It killed it. It's things like that that kills our compassion. And then we can no longer see the people who need because of, you know, things like uh, anger, heart, mistrust, prejudice, racism, unforgiveness. This is where I had to stop and ask myself another question. I asked myself, is there anything stopping me from serving someone or a group of someone with the love of Jesus Christ? I'm going to ask you the question. Is there anything stopping you from serving someone or a group of someones with the love of Jesus Christ? Do they not look like you? Do they not smell like you? Do they dress differently? Do they talk differently? Do you not know about them so they're scary? I mean, we just talked about Martin Luther King. He tried to address these stigmas nonviolently. I think he did a really good job. But because of it, he died a violent death. You know, Jesus, I'm not going to try and compare Jesus to Martin Luther King, so. But Jesus addressed our stigmas, our sin, and he died violently as well. So what is it? Just do a survey. Is there somebody, maybe it's in your own family, maybe you hate their guts because of something. But maybe you just have to bring forgiveness into that. Because there can be nobody that we will not share the love of Christ with because Jesus died for everybody. We have to be willing to do that too. So I anyway, asked two of the questions that kind of struck me. And anyway, um, let's get to this. In any case, the disciples immediately recognized the impossibility of what Jesus was suggesting. Um, they were still seeing in terms of human abilities instead of divine capabilities. In reality, what they were doing is that they were, 
walking by sight instead of by faith. Even though the disciples could probably quote from the Torah all the miraculous things that God had done, all the impossible things that God had done, once they were on the road to impossible, their, their mind, their heart forgot what their mouth was saying or the other way around. Their mouth was forgot what their mind was saying. They forgot to believe what they believed. There's a couple verses I want you to look at uh, just to see if you really believe these because it's important as followers of Christ. Psalmist wrote this, the Lord will accomplish all that concerns me. Do you believe that? Do you believe everything he's called you to, he's going to make possible, even if it's impossible? How about this one? This is what Gabriel uh, told Mary. For nothing is impossible for God. Do you believe it? Do you believe that? How about this one? Jesus told his disciples this. He said, for with people it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. I have to tell you, as followers of Christ, we need to really believe that because God is going to put us in places that are impossible. And we have to see the possible in all the impossible things that he puts us in. I mean, literally, we cannot give a glass of water to somebody if it's not done in the name of Jesus. It's not worth, it's not going to do any value for the kingdom of God if we do it just because I'm a humanitarian. So, a couple things. We should, not, we should judge God's calling on us based on what God can do and not on what we can do. So in other words, we shouldn't scale down God's calling on my life to what I'm able to do. Never scale it down. Let me tell you a story about this. I had just left the pastorate and wasn't happy about it. Church wanted a new pastor. Um, and, I, and I happened to be at the time, I, I was meeting with this, the CEO of Zondervan Books. And uh, she wanted to know my plan. So I put my plan together, and this is what I was going to do. This is the next steps for Wayne in the kingdom. And she listened to it, and she goes, Wayne, I could see you doing every one of those things. But I have a question for you. I said, what's that? Do you think you're thinking too small? Oh, it was like I got slapped in the face. I knew exactly what she meant. What she meant was that I made a plan for my life that I could accomplish. And I didn't even factor in what God could do. You see, what I had done inadvertently was I had shrunk God down to my size. Instead of believing in God his size, we can't do that. Because God's going to call us to do impossible things. Feeding 4,000? Eh, maybe not. A couple dozen, maybe. So, never shrink down what God can do. Uh, and put your, Don't make God down to your size. <clears throat> so anyway, after I met with this lady, um, I redid my plan. And out of that plan was born sole priority. And now in 10 years, probably close to 200 women and men have either been taught or discipled biblical principles in business. The book, Work in the Light, has been published. And the podcast, Work is Calling, is up and running, getting the stories of other women and men who have decided to bring Jesus Christ into their workplace. 
10 years ago, it not only didn't exist, it was impossible. And God had made it all possible. Verse 6, Jesus asked him, how many loaves do you have? Jesus, uh, Jesus asked, seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when they had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to disciples to set before the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. And he gave, them, he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. So the first thing that's here, and now we're going to get to it, the steps that we need, I think, to take when we realize God is calling us to do the impossible. First step to see the possible and impossible is place the resources we have in the hands of Jesus. Take what you have and give them to Jesus. The disciples gave the loaves and the fish that they found to Jesus. And when we feel God's calling us to the impossible, look around. What has God given you that you have in hand? And just take that and give it to him. To realize when Jesus was talking about this, he said, when I want you to multiply something 30, 60, or 100 fold, okay, all you have to do is plant one seed. One seed. The second thing that I think it's important to notice from this is that after taking the bread and fish and giving it to Jesus, Jesus gave thanks for what was available. I think when we're called to do the impossible, to see the possible in the impossible, I think the first thing we should do is give thanks for what we have to start with. Just give thanks. Just very simply, give thanks. I don't know what it is, but an attitude of gratitude uh, unleashes God's grace for us. He loves it. He loves when we realize where the gift has come from and how we acknowledge that. And he blesses it. He blesses it profoundly. There's just something about thankfulness that unlocks God's power in our lives. So to see the possible and any possible, give thanks for the resources you have to start with. Very simple. Now, once Jesus gave thanks, it's really interesting because the next thing they did is, he said, here, give it to him. Okay? So if you want to see the possible and impossible, just get going. Just start. Literally, don't worry about where the next fish is coming from. Just take the fish you have and give it away, you know, so to speak. I remember there's a story about this uh, uh, one guy who was a, a pastor in China, and uh, um, he was being taken around the country, and this guy who was taking him around had to keep buying him suits all the time. It was like, what, what happened to the suit I just gave you? And he said, well, I gave it away, you know. And so he would just, this guy would buy him another suit, you know, but he just gave giving away what he had. So I have to say, don't worry about where the next fish is coming. Without moving, God can't really guide you, okay? I mean, think about it. You could be in a car, steering it to the left, steering it to the right, steering it straight, okay? But if you're in a parking space not moving, the car's not going anywhere. It's the same thing with us. You have to be moving, and God will direct you. He'll lead you, but you have to be moving. You know, Israel was at the River Jordan. He was with Joshua. And it says that God told them to go to the other side where the promised land was. The problem was is that the Jordan was at flood stage and it said it had completely overflowed its banks. Now Joshua could have sat there and said, um, let's wait a couple of weeks. I don't want to get our togas dirty, you know, a little wet. Uh, so, you know, just, you know, whatever. He didn't do that. God told him to go. It looked impossible. He looked around, we had feet, we can get across the river. 
So they obeyed immediately. They just got started. You had the priests pick up the Ark of the Covenant. They walked towards the water. They got up to their ankles in water. And it was like an invisible dam was built on all the upstream water. And it said the water just kept piling up and up and up and up. And downstream, the water just fled and, and disappeared and it left dry ground. Sometimes to see the possible and impossible, we don't see it because we don't get started. So just start. <clears throat> Did you notice also that um, Jesus gave the food to the disciples to give to the people. Now, I kind of said that before, but I want to draw something different from this. God is a partner in God. He could do everything without any one of us. In fact, I would guess he could do it better than with us. But the reality is, he wants us to be his hands. He wants us to be his arms. And what he did is he gave the disciples the bread and he said, here, you give it to them. He didn't call the crowds up to him and he gave them out and everybody's like, wow, this Jesus is a really nice guy, you know? No, 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 no. He gave it to them and he said, you give them to the people. To see the possible and impossible I think we need to also look at our hands and realize that Jesus is using them. They're his hands. They don't have holes in them, but they're his hands. I, I think that's you know, really, really one of the most important things that, that we could take from watching how God consistently throughout Scripture I, there's a Bible verse. It's, it's Ephesians 2.10. You probably all know it. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So we are his workmanship. That word could be translated masterpiece. The word is literally poema in Greek. We get our word poem from it. We are God's poem. We are his masterpiece. Okay? And it says that we are created in Christ Jesus. You know, Artists will use marble to make things. They'll, they'll use wood to carve things. They'll use paint to paint things. Well, God, to remake us, uses Jesus. Jesus matter. Jesus stuff. We're being made out of Jesus. And, and it says that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And it doesn't mean like, oh, that was so nice what you did for that little old lady. That's so nice. No, 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 no. I mean, it could mean that but it means what's beneficial, that you did something that benefits somebody else, maybe at your own expense. And then it says, the work that he has prepared beforehand. And to me, this is the most awesome thing. Do you realize that before you existed, your work existed? Do you realize that all eternity, God has been sitting there waiting? Oh, I can't wait for Marty. I can't wait for Marty. I got some work for him to do. I can't wait for Marty. And then God calls Marty out of nothing. He calls him into existence. And then he waits, oh, I got to wait for Marty to grow up. <laughs> oh, and then I can't wait for Marty to find Jesus. And he redeems Marty. And then all of a sudden, Marty, I got something for us that we could do together. God has waited 
for all eternity to have you work with them. Every one of you. It's exactly the same thing. Because he wants you to be his hands, his arms, his heart, his mind, his lips, to do all these things, to say all these things, to reach out to people. He loves you. He loves you tremendously. So, as far as the steps go, that's it. But there's one more final thing that Jesus says. Uh, Mark puts down here. It says that the people ate and were satisfied. After the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over, about 4,000 men were present. I think one of the coolest things here is that after the ministry, the people that they administered to were satisfied. They had experienced the satisfaction of being blessed by the God of the universe. And I'm telling you, I'm telling me, that when we enter the calling that God's given us, when we give him our hands, we give him what we have around available to to do this ministry with, when we give thanks for it, you know, uh, it happens in people's lives. And they're satisfied. And you will see that satisfaction. And I'm telling you, you will rejoice in that satisfaction. So, what did we learn today? Well, we learned maybe I should take some time to be with Jesus. What else did we learn? Oh my goodness, is there anybody that I would not share the love of Jesus Christ with because of some stupid reason in my heart? And then we learned that when God calls you to do the impossible, look around, see what you have available. Take it and give it to Jesus. Give thanks for what you have. Go ahead and just get started. Just start doing it. And then finally, just look at the hands that God's given you and realize that they're now being used by Jesus. They're Jesus' hands. Let's pray. Father, this has been a really interesting uh, couple sermons. We've gone from a woman who had no hope, saw things as hopeless, and now we have disciples who are being asked to do the impossible. And yet with the hopeless, you gave hope. You became the hope. And when faced with the impossible, you showed the possible that was impossible because because with you, nothing is impossible. I pray, Father, that it, it both encourages us and challenges us to really move our lives forward in a way that gives you everything that you've given us so that we could give it back to you with an act of gratitude and to, to move forward with whatever you call us to, not worrying about anything, knowing that you will accomplish everything that concerns us and the work we've called us, you've called us to. Thank you for this lesson. Lord, may it bless us and may it bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media, at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you. 
and so do we.